so as the secret guitarist plays the grandstand theme, it can mean only one thing. Episode six of the Socially Distant Sports Bar has just landed on your podcast feed. Ellis James, Mike Bubbins and the other one bringing you two clips each from YouTube, one sports book each. And one of us brings a documentary every episode as well. Ellis, how are you? You okay? Very good. Saw an amazing thing on the Facebook page for my Five Live show. Well, Mm -hmm. for my Radio X show. Here we go. Uh, where there are people who are big fans of this uh, podcast, big fans of Mike in particular. One person describing Mike's uh, health <laughs> advice as Trumpian. <laughs> oh yes, brilliant! Thank you. <laughs> because obviously, if you if you're new to this podcast and you mm. and you haven't uh, heard uh, the first few episodes, um, I will give him his dues. Mike was in very good shape in the when was your peak, Mike? Early two thousands. I'd say around 2001, yeah, 2001. Yeah. yeah, there are pictures on his personal Facebook uh, where he's training in the gym, not wearing a huge amount, and it is it is impressive. I mean, they're not there all the time. I don't put, put them up every every. Like, no, no, no. But but they're there. No. You know, they're, they're, if if you search for them, you can find them. <laughs> but um, but during this period, <laughs> Mike was eating literally zero fruit and veg. No, that's fine. But I'm all right. How are you, Steph? I'm all right. I'm, I'm okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of settling into the evening. Kind of one beer and some internet connection issues later. I feel all right. I'm kind good. of good. I'm kind of okay. Mike, how's, how's Bubbins Towers? All good? Yes, all good, mate. Very, very well. Uh, been enjoying the sunshine. Uh, been enjoying just life of in, in lockdown. Yeah, it's been brilliant. So it's all, it's all good for me. Excellent. Right. So we have documentary heading our way in a little while, but let's start with clips and (laughs) Mike sent this one through earlier on in the week and I was supposed to be doing work at the kitchen table and I absolutely collapsed into fits of laughter (laughs) with my headphones on giving away the fact that I wasn't actually marking essays unless the essay was that bad (laughs) it does happen from time to time Uh, Mike what is clip number one this is a bloke I've got an awful lot of time for. Uh, he always comes across very, very well in interviews, and he never takes himself too seriously. This is the wonderful, the one and only Sean Williamson, a.k.a. Barry from EastEnders, singing before the World <laughs> Bowls final. We're going to do it anyway. 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 How good is that? How good is that, right? I, I, I mean, that, there's a bloke who doesn't piss about, pardon my French, right? He's been asked to go in there for, for reasons best known to the organisers and, and sing, that, sing that particular song to all the uh, 75-year-old white people in the audience. And he gives it absolute, doesn't he? Gives it the, gives it the full works. I feel very the, sorry for him because I think he's been stitched up by the director. Yes. who insists on those cutaways of very bored-looking people. And you think, give Sean Williamson, a.k.a. Barry from EastEnders, you know, cut him a little bit of slack. There's no need to pan across a load of very, very bored-looking pensioners. It's, I mean, the man is trying his best. Well, it wouldn't matter if that was like um, Otis Redding and his pump. I mean, it, it would have gone down similarly, that's the thing. Yeah. It's, it's, no, it's, not, it's no reflection on his performance as a singer. Although at the end, when he does absolutely nail that last line, you know, it just get. I, I, what would the process have been? Obviously, this is a sports report 
podcast, and this is really stretching stretching the criteria. I, I realise that, right? But the first time I saw this, I was aghast <laughs> because I thought it was a spoof. I thought because yeah. the way it was cut, I thought that he, he's singing somewhere, and they cut it into the World Bowls final, right? <laughs> <laughs> it generally was the World Bowls final. I thought it was something from extras I hadn't seen. Yeah, it it, it plays like. Well, because there are versions of it as well where they've cut him in singing at Trump's inauguration. There, there are a few different versions yeah, of this exactly, at yeah. ludicrous events. But the actual premise of it is ludicrous. I'll tell you, when, when he, he's really into it, he's very method. The line that says, um, just look him in the eyes and see. He does the sort of, the office, the two fingers point <laughs> yeah. to his own eyes and then the point to the audience. I think, God bless you, Sean, because that is... That's next level for me. I've got an enormous amount of sympathy for him as a comedian who oh, has... Christ, I. I mean, I've, I've died on my ass at corporate events. I've I no longer it. say yes to them. Um, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in booking me for a corporate event, don't bother. I'll ruin <laughs> your night. Um, and there's a sinking feeling that, that Mike will be familiar with where you turn up... All right at a show, and you just realise that everything is against you and nothing is in your favour. And as Mike said, you know, yeah. Aretha, Aretha Franklin couldn't have done that. It would have made a difference, yeah. But if you're there for the I, World I, Bowls final, you're there yeah. to watch bowls. You, you're, you're not there to have Barry from EastEnders. Well, no, but if you're there for a trade dinner for the building construction industry in North Wales, you're not there to see me doing some jokes about my dick either. But, I mean, that's what you're going to get, so... <laughs> I, I got, Al, I've got to tell you this, right? I've got two very brief uh, Barry-esque experiences of doing corporates. I'm not, I've, I haven't got a Radio 5 show like you, right? I still have to do the corporates. <laughs> I am available for corporates. Um, right? I, I did one in... in uh, it was, it was the, the aforementioned builders in North Wales. I won't tell you the exact organisation. But I sat on a table, um, and the bloke who organised it, you know, was, for want of a better word, a dick, right? So... <laughs> My agents listen to this. Uh, I apologise. I spoke to a... There was a, a, an architect sat on the, the table with us. And you got to... You know this, Al. You've got to sit down and have a meal with the people. Oh, as well, fuck, you know? yeah, yeah. Bloody awful. Just waiting to go on. All I said to... He said, what do you want me to say? I said, don't say anything, mate. Just just introduce me and I'll get on. And I, I'd asked for a... When they said, what do you want? I said, I'm, I'm not a diva. Just a microphone that works. <laughs> right? But it was like it was like well, it's one of those fixed lectern mics, right? <laughs> so I was like fucking Billy Graham at the front of the stage, right? right? So I do half an hour to some pissed builders. It's just one of the worst gigs possibly imaginable, right? And uh, I came off, and the, the bloke who booked me said, uh, "Hey, that didn't go too well, that did it?" I said, "No, it's fucking awful, thanks." He went, "Just do dirty jokes." I said, yeah, "I don't do dirty jokes." Just do dirty jokes. We're builders, mate. Do dirty jokes. I said, I don't, I don't, that's not the sort of comic I am. But do, just do dirty jokes. I said, I said, not only do I not do dirty jokes, I said, but you sent me an email last week saying don't do any dirty jokes. <laughs> I, I was sat on the table with the, the president of the company I was, I was doing the corporate for. This is years ago now. And his wife, and then the ex-president, the retired president, who they used to invite back for this Christmas do, and his wife, and she leant over and she said, I, I haven't seen you before, what what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm, um, I'm the turn. 
and she said, uh, "Good, good, good use of the word." What, what, what are you, sing, singer or magician? I said, um, "Comedian, believe it or not." And she said, "Can I just believe say, can I just say that I hate uh, comedy of every kind?" <laughs> I said, wow. "Right." And then she went, oh, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. There is a kind of comedy I like. I there is a humour I like. Hang on. The racist stuff. Yeah, she went <laughs> over to her husband. <laughs> Malcolm, Malcolm, what is the humour I like? And his face fell. He'd obviously had to say this at every social engagement for the last 30 years. He went, Margaret, the kind of humour you like is... On Dennis Norden's, it'll be all right on the night. <laughs> There is a <laughs> strong start. There is a clip oh, where a dear. TV presenter is being pecked at by geese and turkeys. Um, and Very yet, specific. And yet she heroically continues to broadcast despite being in some quite considerable discomfort. And then she went, "Yes, that's the humour I like. <laughs> that's the sort of humour I like. That's my genre." Oh, I said, I'll, "I'll see what I can do." <laughs> you. You like this one, right? At least with corporates, they're usually fairly well paid because they're so tall. Yeah. Right? I did one for free once, early days of comedy. I've been going about less than a year. Make the mind got married in Exeter. Asked me to come down and do some comedy at his wedding, right? I said, mate, oh, his name's Tom. He lives impossible. in Texas now, right? I said, Tom, that's not gonna, that's not gonna work, mate. Oh, please come down. Come on. Awful. Yeah. Okay. So I, I haven't seen him for ten years. We go to Exeter for the wedding. What he didn't tell me was what he said. Exeter. He meant Exeter Cathedral. Because Whoa. because his old man was best friends with the Bishop of Exeter, right? Ooh. So I've got so we That's have the, a big the room. Do's. Oh, it is. <laughs> so <laughs> we have the service now. Tom's Tom's not a particularly gregarious bloke, so I reckon the average age of the of the guests there was probably in in the seventies. They're all, all friends of his parents more than anything else. Right? Oh dear, dear, dear. So we go back to this little hotel just across the uh, from the Cathedral Green there in Exeter. By the time they get to the best man's speech, everyone's catching flies, right? Everyone's falling asleep, they've got their mouths open. It's just, it, it is dire. Don't, don't mind me saying, right? He gets, he gets on the uh, top table and says, Mike, uh, come on, do, do a bit now. I said, oh, Tom, no, let's just go to the bar, mate. Let's go to the bar. He said, no, no, cut, please, please, please. Shit, so, he, so I get up now, right? Now, I don't know anybody in the room. I only know Tom. <laughs> Ke- Kelly, my wife, is with me, doesn't, know, doesn't even know Tom, right? So I stand up. To do this stand-up set, right, for, for eighty pensioners, I don't know, right, oh, for free. Oh. Sat sat right in front of me, and I mean literally eight feet away, is the Bishop of Exeter, right, in a fucking <laughs> cas- in a cassock with a crucifix on, right. And then the bride's mum and dad are sat to my right. Now, now, the bride's dad is blind and almost totally deaf, right. So the only way that he can know what's going on is she shouts my lines into his ear, right? <laughs> now, I've got no plan B. I've only just started doing comedy. That's no plan B, right? So the bit that stuck in my mind is when I'm looking right at the Bishop of Exeter, so I've got to do this line because I, I don't know. I haven't got, like I said, there's no, there's no other option. So I, I, do, I commit to the line. The wife turns around to the, to the, to the husband and goes, and then he fingered her. <laughs> right? And the Bishop of Exeter gave me the most withering look imaginable. And it was, it was oh next level, it really was. Hey. Oh, so tip news. of the hat to Sean Williamson, anyway. Yeah, good I mean, news, Mike. It hasn't been a life wasted, but you are going to hell. There, I have seen mm. in, a, in, a, in 
it must be some sort of promotional event for the London 2012 Olympics. Mm. Um, Tony Hadley singing "Gold" in a me- in a meeting room, mm. like in a in a meeting oh, room in a, in a fairly you, you know standard um, average run of the mill um, office room. Yeah, and there's a. There's about 20 people there, and he's got a cordless mic, and he's coming out of a tiny little speaker. And Tony Hadley, you know, let's not forget, an enormously successful singer. And he clearly has been roped into this because he thinks Seb Coe is going to be there. And there's about 15 people there, all with lanyards on. Go! <laughs> Always believe us, awful. Do you know what I can never understand? It's the same when Barry from EastEnders is singing at the World Bowls final, right? Yes. That would have cost quite a lot of money, I'd imagine, for him to do that, right? Yeah. It's going, to, it's going to be several thousand pounds. Yeah. Okay. If I do a corporate, that's going to cost quite a bit of money. If I'm sure if Tony Hadley's doing it, it costs a lot of money, right? Wouldn't you be better off not spending that money and just put it onto the prize fund or give everyone a free pint? Yeah, or just yeah. do something much more constructive with it. If I'm doing that gig in North, North Wales for builders, just give them all a free pint. It would have been, been better more- if they put on a Roy Chubby Brown video. Oh, they'd, have been, they'd have bit your hand off for that. They'd have yeah, left yeah. It. But that's why I think Barry deserves all the plaudits for that because, like I said, right at the top, he's going for it there. He's not. He's not taking the money and running. He's yes, not absolutely. Try, he's not dropping an octave. He's not taking the easy route. He's blasting those the big notes out and probably going for it. Oh, I'd have undersold that song if that had been me. <laughs> oh, I'd have done, I'd sing have done by it in numbers. third gear. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's he's generally sweating by the end of it. Yeah. He looks oh. like Wilson Pickett by the end of that. Song. <laughs> Or Lee Evans. <laughs> uh, that one will be at the top of the uh, YouTube playlist for you this week. Uh, second on the list will be your choice, Al. What, what have you brought first time round? It is England 3, Hungary 6 from 1953, the uh, so-called match of the century. And it, it is a tremendous... Um, display of hubris, really, from the England team. The England team had, had only suffered one defeat on home soil against foreign opposition. They'd lost to uh, the Republic of Ireland in 1949, and that was at Goodison, so they hadn't lost at Wembley. They had lost to, to Scotland at Wembley. It had, it had created a real climate of complacency, so everyone involved in, England, in English football just assumed that they were the best team in the world as the originators of the game, um, that you know, English tactics were the best. The England um, notably hadn't uh, taken part in the 1930, 34 or 38 World Cups. Right. And they'd done very badly in 1950, but that was seen as an aberration. We're going to be using that word a lot when we're discussing this clip. So they were playing Hungary, and everyone knew that Hungary were useful because they'd won the gold medal at the 1952 Olympics. Yeah. But, you know, it's Hungary behind the Iron Curtain. And um, anyway... They get absolutely stuffed. Let's watch the clip. Here they go again, with some of the most perfect teamwork ever seen on the green grass of Wembley. Puskas goes down to Johnson's tackle, but the Hungarian captain slips it over to Hidikuti, who shakes the net with goal number two. Billy Wright was regarded as the best defender in the world. That drag back from Puskas, Ferenc Puskas, he doesn't know what's going on, and he's never seen football like that before. And the England team, as they walked out, they were they were apparently laughing at the Hungarians' kit, just thinking, well, this is going to be a walk in the park. This is going to be easy. Because they were wearing lightweight boots and obviously the kit wasn't as good as the English kit. And the West Ham Academy, which was 
were all the young players who actually went on to win the World Cup in 66, where a lot of them learned their trade. They'd gone down to watch Hungary train, were laughing at the kit, and then realised that they were volleying the ball to each other without it touching the ground from a distance of 20 yards, and they were just doing it time and time again. <laughs> and they were all sort of nudging each other, thinking, oh, shit, <laughs> oh, God, they're half decent. What Hungary did was they played in a way that the, the England team just simply couldn't cope with. So they had they had a deep-lying centre-forward uh, centre in uh, Hidjaguti. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the, the English defence just... They, just they, they, they didn't know what to do because they thought, well, he's too deep for us to man-mark him. So if we go and follow him, we're then out of position. Yeah. But if we don't follow him, he's got all this time and space... And crucially, he is fucking brilliant. <laughs> so they just, they just, they just had no idea what to do, and they were constantly being drawn out of position. And it, Hungary just, just murder them. Well, I've never seen a, a game of football from that from that time before. Not, mm. I don't say sort of three four minute clip. Yeah. What blew me away by of that clip out was how good the skills were in the Hungary team. Yes. And I think this is like an uncoated leather ball with, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, none of the stuff that we would now uh, regard as being essential to play sort of highly skilled football, you wouldn't think, right? Yeah. The one I can't remember which if it was the fourth or fifth goal, but it's a long distance uh, bending shot into the corner. Yeah. And I thought, Christ, that would be like goal of the month now. It was just a fantastic but display also, of skill by the boys there. So, so England's centre half was called Harry Johnson, right? And. He was marking uh, Hidaguti or Hidaguti. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it actually, but who was playing as this false nine, I suppose, sort of deep lying centre forward, effectively a, a midfielder, and it meant that Harry Johnson was always being um, pulled out of position, and they didn't know what to do. And what Eng- the way English football worked at the time was, you know, if you marked your opposing number. But because the English forwards, because the Hungarian forwards were, it was very fluid and they were changing position during the match, it meant that you were like, well, do I follow, do I follow my man or do I not? And they, they just never played against mm. anything that fluid before. And in terms of influence of the game, you know, influence of this game, Don Revy was an enormous admirer um, of this team, so he was, you know, he started playing as um, a, a sort of a deep lying centre forward at Man City. Bill Nicholson, who ended up winning the double with Spurs, he started adopting their tactics. The English FA really realised that you needed to start playing in Europe because otherwise English football was going to get left behind. Alf Ramsey plays in that team. Mm. Um, I mean, and the English FA assumed that it was a bad day at the office. And that it was some it's sort completely of completely outplayed. Yeah, and it was some sort of you know thirty-five shots to five. <laughs> and then it was this sort of this aberration, and they were like, "Listen, you know, we we we're originators of the game. We invented football." The, the thing with the English FA, because there was a sort of English exceptionalism to the way they saw themselves and the way they saw English no. football. What they did was they um, they were like, all right, then we will play you again. We'll play you out in Budapest next Uh-oh. year, and uh, they they got double seven one. <laughs> England were playing in very rigid, straight lines until the 80s. So they, I read this brilliant article by Barney Roney in The Guardian about the uh, quarter-final they played against Argentina, the 86 World Cup, you know, the Hand of God game. Yeah, yeah. And Barney says, the names of the starting 11 are Pete, Gary, Kenny, Terry, Terry, Trevor, <laughs> Glenn, Pete, Steve, Pete and Gary. <laughs> Little wonder that in this company, being called Glenn could mark you out as a bit of a maverick. 
Alf Ramsey was was really really struck by this match. Mm. So the the wingless wonders that they played in '66 that yeah. was that was a, a big change. Certainly in in the context of English football, and Alf Ramsey was the first manager to be allowed to pick his own team because before that it was a board of selectors like Welsh rugby was for yeah, decades. Yeah. Mm. So Walter Winterbottom, you know, he he had no experience of football management. Um. And yet he was manager of the England team, which is which is absurd, you know, by today's standards. And it did influence team people like Bill Nicholson and Matt Busby and Don Revy and yeah. and uh, and Alf Ramsey, people who would go on to completely, you know, revolutionise the club game. But certainly at international level, apart from '66, I mean, the England team didn't qualify for anything from 1970 to 1982, even though the club sides were doing so well in in Europe. But this game, I just... The idea that they could be laughing at the kit because it's, you know, a country that's so part of the Soviet Union. What a lot of wankers. Then, yeah, and then they get absolutely <laughs> hammered. Good. I just, just think good. it's very, very uh, interesting. Right. For this round, I have brought a clip from... It's from a documentary. It's from 2009 from the Lions tour. Uh, they kind of carried on those sort of living with the Lions documentaries. The 97 one is the one that's any good. And then from there on through, I think they just had these agreements with whoever broadcast it that they would make a documentary. So this is a little clip uh, from the 2009 uh, Lions tour. Hi, do you feel men? Yeah. All right, OK. To all our uh, troops, um, stay safe and uh, all the best wishes from the British and Irish Lions. Uh, to all the troops uh, overseas, uh, keep on uh, putting up the good work and uh, keep on fighting. So I make peace with you, Yeah. <laughs> 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 keep, on keep on fighting. Keep on fighting on that. Oh, I'm going crack now, like. So. <laughs> what, a, what a pearl. <laughs> the, the, the things that I like about this are just multiple. Mm. It, it involves Andy Powell, which... I, lo- I love Andy Powell. The- I've got a question to ask about him before go, we go get on. started. Go on. Andy... Now, when I think of Andy Powell, his career coincided with the time when I took least notice or least interest in rugby. <laughs> OK. So when I think of Andy Powell... Yes. And I'm sure that he's very sad about this. I think of the golf buggy incident. But I think that's fine. I think he'd be all right with that. Uh, yeah, that's fine he, he also he got um he got into a fight with some football fans in yes, a pub in did. West London didn't when he, he was playing for Wasps. That was that was it. Some QPR fans hit him over the head with a bar stool. Yeah, so that those are the two things I think of when I think of Andy Powell. Now I hadn't realised he was a British Lion. Yeah, so he was yeah. he was good then. <laughs> well, so so he he was very very good. And I'm not saying he was picked for the Lions tour purely because he was a laugh. For banter. <laughs> but the banter choice. Th- there's there's a layer of truth in there. Yeah. Right. In in that they needed a few people who were Yeah, fun. So there was he was rooming with Luke Fitzgerald, the Irish wing, a couple of weeks before the first test. And Luke's on the verge of getting into the Lions test team and Andy has decided very much he is on a midweek I'm having a laugh tour yeah yeah so it's 4 playing against the club sides not exactly. playing the tests yeah. so he's, he's not going to endanger the test side he may have been told that from the start I don't know uh, in fairness to him but he comes in at 4am reasonably well oiled Luke's been in bed since 10 
and he's got a pizza in his hand, turns on all the lights, sits on his bed and starts to eat a pizza. Right. And Luke just said, oh, Andy, could you turn the lights out, please? So he turns out the lights. And the next thing he knows, the room is covered in pizza because Andy has thrown it against one of those rotating fans in the ceiling and has splattered pizza See? all the way around the room. You can't underestimate on a tour like that morale, right? So some... <laughs> I'm not sure that would improve my morale. Oh, I think it would. What do you tell him? It would drive me. Yeah, nuts. but the, the other 31 blokes in the squad would be pissed themselves laughing. <laughs> Be team bonding. I did. A, I did a. I did a thing with uh, with Rod Gilbert once. Out. We. I think we did. We did different days on the same weekend. Where he did like a sports quiz in a theatre up in, in Wales somewhere. And there was a there was a feel the sportsman round. Oh, at so the park was, and dare in Triorki. Yeah, 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 I did was, that. Yeah, Ryan Jones. I had to feel. Yeah, I, I, I felt Andy Powell. I'd never oh wow! Felt, okay. I've never felt legs like it, and I I played a bit of rugby. He, he came out. This way, I think he'd be fine with a golf cart thing. He came out. I was blindfolded. He's pushing a toy golf buggy, right? Right. And he had the, he's got legs like my like my waist. He, he is absolutely <laughs> yeah. enormous, right? Yeah. But all, any, like that, all any more that I talk about afterwards was was the golf buggy incident on the M4. I mean, he, he he was a very good number eight, very good player, British lion. No one cares about any of that stuff. Oh. Yeah, so yeah. It's always what happened that night, and who was driving the other buggy? That's all. That's you know. And I know who's driving the other buggy. But I'm not going to say it on it. Well, with with the banter thing though, I remember discussing this backstage with you, Mike, at a mm. gig. The '89 Lions. I just chucked a pizza at a fan. Remember? <laughs> backstage of <laughs> Cardiff Glee. Icebreaker. <laughs> I've never met him before. <laughs> but um, the '89 Lions, who won the series against Australia. I think Mike told me this story that obviously it's it's players from England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland and they don't know each other. If they do know each other, they don't know each other very well apart from the players from their own countries. Mm. So Mike was saying that on the first night they all got told, you're not sitting with anyone from your own country yeah. and I want yeah. you to get as, we want you to get as drunk as possible <laughs> yeah. as a team bonding thing and then you can swap stories and you can make each other laugh and then in the morning we'll all have horrendous hangovers we'll run them off and then we'll get to work. And I, I, I really admire that, because I suppose it must have been Ian McGeekin who was coach of the 89. 89 would have been, This is where they really miss out in, in football of this country. And I know that you, you were a big fan of the home, they saw the home internationals. Yeah. And they're not, obviously not such a big thing now, because there's, there's never been that British team, or whether it's because they want to, you know, FIFA have always wanted, I think, Britain to have a, to have a yeah, yeah, yeah. British team. So the, the 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 home associations are obviously very wary of doing that because they, they do themselves out of, out of a place, basically. But um, it must be, when you talk to boys who've played British Lions, they just say it's next level, that you're playing with a, you know, they, they're obviously they're your rivals on the pitch, but to go away with the best players in, in, in the British Isles and really bond over it. Like, it, I, and I, then in my mind, I always think of players from other home nations playing for a British team with, with obviously a, a backbone of uh, England players. What, what would Ryan Giggs have been like in that team? What would Ian Rush have been like in that team? What would have, well, and there's always that thought, isn't there? It's, it's interesting because there was a long time when England, the, 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 the problem they needed to solve was they needed a left-sided Left midfielder. Winger, yeah. yeah. And it was, it was Ryan Giggs was, is the obvious one. Crazy. Um, 
I mean, in the 80s, I used to talk about this a lot when I was at school, the spine of the team would have been Welsh because you would have, Rush was better than Lineker and Nev, Southall was definitely better than Shelton. Yes. Yeah. And Ratcliffe was better than Butcher Most. or Mark Wright or yes. any of the centre-halves you would have played. So then in your, and what Wales had in the mid-80s was quite a weak midfield, but you had two fantastic strikers in Russian Hughes up front. The problem is, is that it would be an enormous, I mean, the Welsh FA and Welsh fans are dead against it because FIFA hate the fact that there are four um, countries because they see it as stealing four places. And the African nations and the South Americans in particular hate it, which is why the 2012 Team GB was a big was a big big problem, you know the yeah. team that Ryan played in and Craig Bellamy and um, you know Joe Allen, Neil Taylor. Great Britain, Great Britain football team. Who who the Andy Powell be? What what the, the, who, the, who's the, your Andy Powell? The, 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 <laughs> Can you take James Collins? Come on, who's he going to be? Come on. He, what I love about James Collins, he is he is old school. He's like yes. a footballer from the eighties. I reckon I Jamie Vardy's up for slinging food at fans and stuff. I re- Do you reckon? <laughs> I re- Electric fans, fans of the stadium, whatever. Just throw it. <laughs> I'm trying to think who the banter choice would be. And to be fair, Andy Powell in that clip, all he's, yes. he's just pointing on a. He's getting. I mean, that's keep on fighting. He's gone mad. Keep on fighting. If you, if you join the army, yes. You know, at some point. You know, there's a good chance you have to shoot people or get shot. <laughs> That's what the army is. And he just got a bit freaked and said, "Keep on, keep fighting. on fighting." And Stephen Jones looks like a naughty schoolboy as well. So like funny, giggling schoolboy. Yeah. <laughs> he just looks Steve- at him like it's 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 almost like it's a a comedy documentary. The way that Stephen pauses for a second. We're trying to make peace. <laughs> <laughs> He was at school with me, Stephen Jones. Was he? Of course he was. Yeah, yeah. Of course he was. Yeah, he's one of the 12. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a paid advert from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, we all carry around lots of different sort of stress moments, whether it's like big or small. It could be as huge as, how am I going to pay the mortgage this month? Or, you know, I'm... I'm Ill, but I don't really want to talk to anybody about that because I don't want to make them feel stressed about it as well. Or you know, it could be just as, something as small as how am I going to get to school pickup in time? I've got a meeting. How do I change that? How do I move that? I forgot to cancel that. And lots of the time we keep it bottled up. And whether it's big or small, it can really start to affect us negatively. And therapy is kind of a safe space to get those things off your chest. So whether it's like coming up with plans to to organize your life a little bit better or whether it's just having someone to talk to about those things you don't want to stress out your mates or your family with. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable and entirely online. You will be matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and you can switch therapists at any time. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash distant. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash distant. So this week's documentary choice is mine. Um, I have gone for a 2014 film called uh, Next Goal Wins. It's on Amazon Prime. You can buy it if you haven't got Amazon Prime. You can buy it on YouTube as well to watch. It is about American Samoa's football team 
They play a World Cup qualifier back in 2001 against Australia and they lose 31-0. And that is the start point, really, for this. They want to get better. They bring in a new coach and this is kind of their journey from 31-0 to wherever it takes them. I wish that I can go back and play against Australia, you know? You can't change anything on the, on the internet. It's still going to stay in the record for a long time. It's embarrassing, you know? I was there when Australia beat us 30 no. 30, I think 30 or 31, I'm not, but I know it was 30. The boys, they got the hearts. I know they not really have the skills and everything, but they got the guts. We're always the underdogs and we always will be until we prove them wrong. They needed nine goals today. You gave them only eight. Step. These are steps. Steps all going in the right direction. I played with George Best, Jorn Cruyff. I coached several MLS teams. Thomas is a real professional high-level coach. Go, pressure, fight Dalla. Go, buddy. Um, he's tougher. You're playing yourself out of the starting eleven right now. If you're not going to be mentally tuned in, you're a risk, man. When he it's kind of a journey of two parts for me. This one, the <laughs> the the coach who the initial coach who, when they interview him, says, yeah, we lost 30-0 to Australia. And then somebody the other side of the camera obviously looks at him and he goes, yeah, 31 or 30, <laughs> whatever it was. He's like, don't, don't hide behind that one goal, mate. It was 31-0. Oh, well. That is- Modern era as well. May I've got to say, you know, I guess I, I love listening to this, not my bits, but you two. And I, I love the, the steers we get. I sat down and watched this in the middle of the week. And I think I mentioned this to you on the phone. The first sort of half of it, I'm I'm giggling away, thinking this yeah. is fairly this is fairly pathetic, and it was almost like like a joke documentary about how bad this team were. Yeah. But the second half of it just kicks you in the nuts. Like when I'm no spoiler alerts, but there's a bit towards the end where I was in tears. I was so desperate for them to do well, I was in tears watching it on the couch, and it's so uplifted at the end of it. It's such a good documentary. So the guy they bring in is a coach called Thomas Rongen. He's a Dutch guy. And the, and the first the first clip of him, the first soundbite, is him just going, yeah, I played with uh, George Bess and Johan Cruyff. And you immediately think, oh, you're going to be a dick. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's, it's almost as if he, his story is as much the story as it is of the American Samoans. So them oh, yeah. kind of coming up to his level and him pulling back from being a bit of a knobhead to, to being a normal human. Yeah. And it's a really interesting journey for both sets, I think. And I think everybody involved in it comes across as just being I don't, impressive and charming. What I found amazing was I remember that 31 nil because it made headlines all over the planet. Mm. And... I think Arbroath beat Bonacord in the Scottish League 36-0 in 1885. Right. And that's still, the, you know, the record margin, record defeat. But that's 135 years ago. Yeah. So to lose, when when scores are in the 30s, in a, in a game that's recognised by FIFA... You think, well, this they are rubbish. So I, and this so is I, this is no this is no reflection on on the Australian football team, but they're not Brazil either. I mean, they're, they're no, not no, the no, best, they're not, not the best team in the world. No, so I, so I, I googled it. An American Samoa is has a population of about sixty five thousand people. It's the same as Barry, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've they've you know 
it's, it's a tiny little place. Now, I, I absolutely love this documentary. Oh, and, so good. You know, there is, there is the, the, the bit that made Mike cry made me cry as well. I just couldn't believe it. But the, So, again, no spoilers. But the thing... What I found very interesting was... Um, I've just finished The Test, the documentary yeah. that Steph chose a few weeks ago about the Australian Brilliant. cricket team, you know, in this sort of post-ball tampering era and they're rebuilding. Mm. Now, the Australian cricket team, they are, cricket is Australia's national sport... And it's a it's a Western developed country, so they're professional sportsmen and they've got everything provided for them, and they're playing in one of the highest, you know, sort of profile contests in 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 world sport, I would say. And yet, the themes of camaraderie and team spirit are basically the same as in um, Next Goal Wins. Yes, because yeah. when they when they lose, they're upset, and when they win. They're delighted, and it's about the team coming together to bond. And I, because I, I was watching the, both documentaries in in tandem, the the amount of parallels I saw between a really terrible football team yeah. and a fantastic mm. cricket team was really struck me. And they get up at five o'clock in the morning to do the first training session. Yeah, yeah. Because then they've all got to work all day. Some are fishermen, some are whatever they are, right? But they work all day. Then they come back at sort of five, six o'clock in the morning for the second training session. So yeah. if you get about 4.30, training, working all day, training again, no money. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, none of them have paid any money for it. And like you said, not only... It's the anticipation of losing as well. It's that hard yes, feeling. Yes, yes, yes. When, when you're playing a game that you know you're going to get tonked, yeah. that's a horrible feeling for that Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Days, right? Well, there's a tournament they travel to before the Dutch guy comes on board and they've got kind of an interim coach. In charge, and there's a scene in the dressing room before the Lally first Manil. game. Is it? Where, yeah, it is. Yeah, and you think that you think this is going to be the turning point, and they're, they're going to and they're in the changing room, and he goes, "What do we do if we lose the ball?" And all the players go, "Get it back." And he says, what, what, "When we get the ball back, what are we going to do? Keep it." <laughs> and it and, well, mate, this, it's not even that. If you listen, if you listen to it, he says, "What do we do when we lose the ball?" There's, there's <laughs> it's not if. There's no if involved, right? <laughs> what do we do when we lose the ball? <laughs> well, the, yeah, we talked about the bit with um, with Graham Taylor, you know. Yeah. And obviously managers shout out stuff on the sideline and, and it's, it's in short packets of information, right? And you might say, press, you know, press, stay tight, do this, do that, you know. <laughs> he's screaming out of that game, he's going, he's going, turn around, <laughs> turn around, yeah. look at the ball. <laughs> Look, I mean, that's really basic, isn't it? So someone on the field is facing the wrong way in a game. Yeah, I, the Dutch coach who oh. was played with Johan Cruyff and George Best. And is, so what happened, because, you know, under the, due under the jurisdiction of the US Football Association, they, they just appealed for a coach. They said, well, can anyone, yeah. can anyone please come and help out? And he's the only person who applies. And, you know, he grew up in Amsterdam and obviously they're football Thomas mad Rondon. in Holland. Um, and I would have... They don't really dwell on this, actually. But I would love to know what he was doing with them initially because I'm assuming it was just the absolute basics, the yeah. fundamentals, because if they're facing the wrong direction as the match is yeah. taking place, <laughs> what, where do you begin? Where do you well, start? There's, there's a bit before he arrives, and I think uh, Larry Manao is keen to make a good impression on Thomas Rongan. Yeah. And he basically calls the boys in and says, uh, 
t- tidy your rooms up, please. He said, and fucking hide the ashtrays. Right? Yeah, yes. I think this is, I mean, that is sound advice, isn't it? Yeah. When you're smoking, go around the back of the shed. Yeah, yeah. 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 Basically, yeah, don't, stop, don't stop smoking, but hide the ashtrays. And, you know, as, you know, we're, we're all from a small country. And I accept that Wales, with a population of three million, yeah. When it comes to the football, especially you know, especially in South Wales, when you're competing with another major sport, and we're going to lose some players to that. That we're not going to compete on a national. We're not going to win the World Cup. Now, when you're from an island of sixty-five thousand people, yeah, you, your your expectations are going to be very, very different. But you cannot smoke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone cannot smoke. It is tremendously sad. I think that their best player is the goalkeeper. And the goalkeeper who conceded 31 goals in an international. And it's 15 years on and he's having effectively panic attacks. Yeah, and anxiety dreams. But he was still playing PlayStation as American Samoa trying to beat Australia. Oh, it's heartbreaking, that bit. Anyone who's ever watched top-level sports, especially their country playing, has had that little daydream, or you've discussed it in the pub before the game. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to watch, I don't know, Wales play at the Euros and... Bale goes down, yeah. and Ryan Giggs, rather than choosing any of his substitutes, plucks me from the stands. Could happen. And, um, you know, I've then got to play in a top-level football match. And you're, and you're discussing with your mates. My five-year-old's got a book where this happens to a bear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, how long, would you, how, lo- how long would you last before you were made to look really stupid? What would it be that sort of gave you away and all that kind of thing? Now, if you're from a small island like that and you're playing a, a game that is, you know, it's a World Cup qualifier, it must be terrifying because you think well I'm just going to be made to look like a right plonker yeah. yeah but they're, they're just as patriotic as anyone else you don't want to make a fool of yourself they just want to be a bit better not because yeah, they lost 31 yeah, yeah. nil, but yeah. because they think they can be a bit better and they, they don't want to be bottom of the FIFA rankings no they think they can score a goal I don't think I've ever been as, in, as emotionally invested in a team's performance no. There wasn't Wales or the Swans in any sport, in anything. Yes. I watched out and, my boy who's 10, and we both looked at each other afterwards and said, that's now our second favourite team. Yeah, yeah. All right. I'll, I will, I'll look for American Samoan results whenever I see like FIFA stuff going and on. And the, the first half an hour, you think, OK, it's just a documentary about a terrible football team. And then after once, once you're 30 minutes in, I was absolutely gripped. <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant, yeah. Brilliant. So it's on it's on Amazon Prime. It's also available on YouTube if you want to find it there and pay a bit of cash for that if you haven't got Amazon Prime. Right, round two of clips. Uh, Ellis, you get to go first with this one. I was inspired to choose this. Um, after having a discussion um, when I did Fight and Talk, which is a programme Mike has done lots of times, with Steve Bunce, the voice of boxing. And it was around the time of the Conor McGregor-Floyd Mayweather fight. And we were discussing it, and I thought I was saying the things that I wanted, that Bunce wanted to hear. So I said, I, I'm, I'm not a fan, actually. I think it's discrediting the sport, and I think it's a slight insult to all of the boxers who've trained so hard who'll never get to fight Floyd Mayweather and are clearly better boxers than yeah. Conor McGregor ever will be. And, and Steve said, no, absolutely not. This has always happened in boxing. Yeah. 
and you know you've 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 always had these freak show fights of people fighting people from other disciplines and i and and also boxing has always been about entertainment and it's always been about making money and it made an absolute fortune and people were obsessed with it and I I was quite surprised by what Steve Bunn said. And then I remembered, actually, I remember the Chuck Wepner-Andre the Giant fight, which I had heard of. And I went back and looked at it. And I've I've done a little bit more reading about it. But anyway, let's let's, let's take a look. Chuck Wepner, a club fighter, who was the inspiration for Rocky Balboa of the Rocky movies, took on another wrestler, Andre the Giant, a 400-pounder who nearly swallowed him whole. Chuck is the kind of guy who would probably fight uh, a gorilla or a kangaroo. It wouldn't make any difference to Chuck. He was on the style of uh, Tony Galento, who was known to fight a bear even like that. Now, Chuck Chuck Wepner is six foot five. (laughs) But Andre the Giant is a giant. (laughs) So the way he's he's thrown around the ring, he he looks about 13 years old. Like like he's fighting his dad or something. He's the he's the giant in the Princess Bride. That's why I was a huge fan. I mean, he's you know well over seven foot. I think so seven he's over a foot seven foot sixty, seven foot eight. Yeah, seven. something like that. Wow. So he's he's over a foot taller than uh, Chuck Chuck Wepner. Now I'd I'd always assumed that it was legitimate, but they reckon that it was uh, thrown that fight. Or there's a, there's evidence to to show yeah. that it was that it wasn't um, a, a valid fight, shall we say? But um. You know, there's, there's, there's been a lot about this. You know, um, I, I knew that um, a boxer had fought a bear. And then I looked that up. That's also Chuck Wepner. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not, not a boxer. <laughs> Chuck. So he has got form. That's brilliant. <laughs> now, um, when Chuck Wepner fought a bear, and as a boxer, he'd he'd fought Muhammad Ali. Like, he was, he was yeah. a decent boxer. Yeah. Uh, Wepner fought Victor the Bear twice once his boxing career came to an end in the mid-70s. Although Victor the Bear was declawed, defanged and wore a muzzle, he was still a bear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, like the way, I like the way he fought him twice as it, his manager made sure there was a, you know, there was a rematch. Yeah, rematch. Rematch clause. Make the bear sign it. Wepner was warned not to hit the bear in the face. What with him being a bear and all? Um, the uh, bear was uh, eight feet tall and six hundred and fifty pounds—a figure that is disputed by wrestling bear historians. The yeah. fights were both considered draws because Muhammad Ali <laughs> fought um, what's his name, Inoki um, yes. Antonio uh, Inoki, who was a Japanese professional wrestler in a mixed rules match. It's interesting because it kind of leads a little bit onto because the initial UFC. Have you ever watched UFC One? I watched it. No. I could not believe what I was seeing. So, <laughs> so basically, people turn up and they are the best of their yeah. chosen sport. I got it from, uh, there was a video shop on Richmond Road. <laughs> My friend Simon and I went in there, we were in university, and we got a video out. This looks a bit of fun, UFC, right? Went home, put it on, thinking it was going to be like wrestling, you know, yeah. like Big, Big Daddy against Giant Haystacks or Ultimate Warrior against Hulk Hogan, right? Oh, it's, it's horrific. So we put this thing in, and the first one was a sumo wrestler in the, in the sumo gear, Against this Dutch shoot fighter, right? I don't, didn't even know what a shoot fighter was. What like, is yeah, a shoot fighter? It's just like, I think it's like got a, a gun. Big, like, like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> a fucking big gun. No, so. <laughs> it's like, I think it's like, like a kickboxer, I suppose. So I thought, oh, I was just going to work now. And the sumo bloke was massive. He was huge. And he runs at this Dutch bloke who sort of sidesteps him, trips him up, 
I think, oh, what's going to happen next? He kicks him in the face, right? Yes. Like full yeah. on kicks him in the face. His nose explodes. I looked at Simon and went, holy shit, what's this? Yeah. And went, it's the kind of thing that happens in a pub car park. That's what it was then. I think yeah. like Ken Shamrock was a boxer. Then there was like the Gracie brothers from Jiu Jitsu. And, and there, there was no, there wasn't a UFC style of fighting. No, Everyone it was literally boxers against wrestlers yeah. against karate. Bring your guys. best thing. Yeah, let's the, see if the, it's better than that thing. The thing with which I prefer to be honest, Ali versus Inoki. <laughs> I, I mean, not Andre the Giant versus Chuck Weapner, but certainly Ali versus Inoki. If you were the heavyweight champion of the world in the seventies and eighties, you were mm. recognised. I mean, up to the seventies and eighties, you were recognised as the world's hardest bloke. Oh yeah. You know, Mike Tyson was the world's hardest bloke. And I don't having, think... Having seen the footage of him training this week on um, wow, Twitter, yeah. he still is the world's hardest bloke. And I, I, you know, heavyweight boxers, they don't still have that allure, I don't think, in the same way because of MMA and, and UFC and all that kind of stuff. Oh, don't get me started on this, mate, because I would, I, would, I, would I would put the Gypsy King in against any UFC fighter, and my money's on... The, on, on on the big fella. It's if they get them, if they start grappling with them, or if they get them on the yeah, floor. If, 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 if my auntie abolished my uncle, you know. It's all... <laughs> the, other, the other, the other thing is he's six foot seven. You got to get inside his reach first. He's just gonna yeah. He's six foot bang. nine. It's Deontay Wilder, six he's foot six seven. Nine, sorry, T- mate, yeah. Tyson's six foot nine. He's Andre the no. Giant size. But um, I apologise to any UFC fan because whenever you mention this online, UFC fans think you have basically. You've, you've, you've massacred a village or something. They, they go, they go insane. Just go it's, straight for bubs. Tag the rest of us out. Yeah, well, yeah. I, yeah I, I think, if you go I think over this, it, go for it. I, I don't, I don't like <laughs> UFC, and I don't really follow it. I don't I mean, mind it, but I'm, I, don't, I'm, I support yeah. Brett Johns because he's from Swansea, and he's I've and he's a lovely human, and he's a lovely bloke, and I really hope that he wins every bout, and I hope he's world champion. And they're supremely kind of fit, supremely brave. You know, I'm not saying that. A lot of his grappling, though. I can't stand to watch people just grapple on the floor for a bloody hours. They right? are... Um, it's... I mean, this this is going to sound mental. Good. But I don't like it, although I do like boxing, because it's it's too brutal, really. I find UFC quite... I can find it quite sickening, even though... The punching on the ground stuff. All of I that stuff. A, who were the two uh, the female fighters recently? Oh, the Polish girl against the... Oh, what's her name? What's her name? What's her name? But her face afterwards, she had this like hematoma above her eye. Yeah, she looked she looked deformed. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll put it on the. Uh, it was a UFC fight. But Pretty, yeah, stick it up. Her forehead was enormous. Yeah, right? yeah. It, it, it was. She'd fractured her skull. She'd done something. But I thought, Christ. There are actually fewer deaths in the UFC. Far fewer deaths than in boxing because there's so many different. More. There are so yeah. many different ways to win. Yeah. So you can get someone to you know tap out and all that. So kind of I thought I listened to someone talking about. Um, he was, I think he was an ex-boxer who got on the UFC, saying that when you get knocked out, and I've been knocked out playing rugby, you know, when it's a it's a weird feeling when you wake up and you've had that full concussion, and it's a horrible feeling, and you feel like yeah. your head's bloody so tight, it's just a, not, not nice. But he said, and oh, this never happened to me, he said, when you get choked out, mm. it's completely different. It is, it's just a terrifying, horrible feeling. Also, they wear smaller gloves, so you can't hit as hard, because... Yeah. You know, the gloves you wear are different. The thing with UFC, though, is the boxers who go into UFC and they are just practitioners of boxing and have mm. no martial art background at all, they always get absolutely battered. They do, yeah. 
yeah. they get absolutely battered. Well, in those early days, it was, it was always the Gracie brothers. And the other, yes. Like I said, Ken Shamrock and those some big hitters. But they would get you on the floor in a, in a heartbeat. Yeah. And yeah. You're, you're in serious trouble. But boxers like uh, James Tony did it, didn't he? Did, yeah, he did, and, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Quite, quite a few boxers at the end of their careers, I thought, well, you know, it can't be that. Kembo Slice did it, didn't he? Kimbo Slice, a man who was made famous for fighting in his back garden. In gardens, I loved it. <laughs> I used to I love, love Kimbo Slice videos on YouTube. <laughs> I think if what, what manner of maniac watches that on YouTube and goes, oh, I'll have a bit of that. <laughs> Fucking Take you down. Is Kimbo there, please? He's out the back garden. All right. <laughs> press record, press record. <laughs> I could. The Kimbo Slice videos were always the same. It was yeah. a bloke turning up full of bravado, yeah. and he's bouncing on his heels because he's, you know, he's, it's like he's, you know, coked up or something. He's like, you know, I'll bat him. I'll bat him now. And then as soon as Kimbo Slice <laughs> comes at him, you could just see his confidence evaporate, and then he gets beaten up next to a washing line in a barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> uh, punches down. a rotary line. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, when Kimbo Slice, um, I hate did... myself for watching those videos. By the way, <laughs> when, when he goes down a rabbit hole, I try, it's worse than porn. I, I flick it down. <laughs> My wife walks in. Why watching? Nothing. Just t- two blokes fighting on a canal towpath. I love it. <laughs> I love it. What the th- if if we're talking about how you know <laughs> cannabis is a is a gateway drug? Kimbo Slice was a gateway drug for me <laughs> for, for watching very late eighties, early nineties Irish travellers calling oh, each other oh, out. I love it. Oh. I'll fight super. any man. I will fight any man. If you won't fight me, mate. You lunatic. What? <laughs> uh, give me call. Like the numbers all one, two, three, four. <laughs> give me. <laughs> Are you listening, Davy Jones? I'm calling you out. Oh, what? <laughs> Honest to God. I love it. Oh, I've been watching this all day long. Hey, give, give me a ring on telephone. The name's 0140. Number 01423. Come on, I'll fight any man. Like I'll fight any... He's <laughs> awesome. I've had enough. Davy, have I had enough? And he gets up and just keeps going. And he's got like... One fella's always got a tracksuit bottoms on and a pair of trainers. And another fella's got like a, a vest and jeans on. Have I had enough? <laughs> Has he bollocks that enough? <laughs> absolutely rock. I love watching oh. those. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I'll try to have a car park for the fiver. <laughs> Get me on those. I love those I videos. Still, yeah. Kimbo, I reckon oh. that is how I... Sp- you know, I, I didn't have a girlfriend. That is how I spent 2005 was watching Kimbo Slice videos. Have you had enough? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, please. Yeah, yes, please. Yes, please, Mister. <laughs> Sorry, Mister Slice. <laughs> oh, yeah, imagine it. Did you record You're that? St- oh. Delete it. Delete yeah. it. <laughs> Don't put that on fucking YouTube. You dare. You fucking dare put that on YouTube. Uh. Trying to press delete with your broken hand. <laughs> How did Kimbo Slice go, love? I can't What? Fucking lunatic. Delete it. I'm going to be honest, you was bigger than I expected, actually. Oh, Guess what I'm doing after this? Guess what I'm doing after this? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was the only one. Uh, oh, I thought no, I was man. the only one who was watching Huge. it. I had a T-shirt. 
Love this. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> It, it never. It was never formalised in any way. It was literally in, no. in a back garden. Not even a bit of rope to make a circle. No, or a, no, no, no. None of that bollocks. Like you know, he, he'd knock some poor cunt out, and he and he would wake up next to an old bag of cement. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's go, <laughs> let's go gear change, Mike. Uh, what is? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what is your clip for round two? Right, this is me fighting a neighbour in my back garden. In my <laughs> I was stuck on YouTube yesterday. <laughs> oh man, this is uh, right. <laughs> this is I used to love watching this. There was a, there was a, a a program called Kickstart on TV and BBC in the eighties, uh, which is about trials, motorbike riding and competing. And then they did a junior version called Junior Kickstart, uh, hosted by Peter Purvis. And this is a clip which I love from Junior Kickstarter. This is the one that really caused the problems, and it's caused one for him too. Oh, he seemed to lose all confidence. He just threw that off. He caught his thigh in the handlebars. You can see him holding himself there. Oh, dear. And the St. John's ambulance man uh, tried to get there in a hurry. Well, he probably needs some treatment in a minute. Nick Britton, the promoter. <laughs> oh, sorry, this is... Uh, one shouldn't laugh. The poor lad uh, took a nasty knock there, but this is uh, a bit like the Keystone Cops down there. There's so much that's right about this about this <laughs> clip, right? I mean, the fact you've got a... My lad's 10, OK? Yeah. I don't let him go on roller skates unless he's holding my hand, OK? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> They've got a kid there of 10 years of age on what looks like a fairly full-size sort of one, two, five, two-stroke trials bike right yes. for a start, the bike's huge on him right so health and safety bells start ringing anyway <laughs> he, he then comes towards uh, he comes towards essentially a bridge now it, it's just a balance beam so what, he's, what this kid's got to negotiate is like a probably a 10 or 15 foot long 4 inch wide beam right <laughs> and try and stay on the beam that's all he's got to do now you're going to put that beam on the grass everyone's happy right if he falls off, he's 10 years of age, he's, he's fallen four inches, he's going to be fine. Be in the 80s, they put the balance beam over a fucking pit, right? which, is, which is about 10 feet deep, covered with some straw. Right? A bit of straw. So this kid falls off, right? falls off the balance beam, looks like he punctured a spleen on the handlebars, right? Yeah, and ricked, yeah. it, ricked his bollocks on the tank, right? If he had them, I don't know. And then... Femur's and then, gone. And then in proper, in proper 80s style... There's a bloke wearing what looks like an air raid warden's jacket. Right? It's, <laughs> it's someone from Dad's Army. <laughs> it's like the warden, like, what's his name? Pertwee from Dad's exactly. Army coach. Yeah, yeah. In a excuse, frock coat. In excuse a frock me, coat. it's a blackout. We, we've heard the siren, it's a blackout. <laughs> he comes in in his, in, his, in, his, in his air raid warden issue frock coat, right? Falls into a pit of hay on top of the kids, right? <laughs> And then his mate comes in and falls in as well. It's just... <laughs> and Peter Purvis is trying not to laugh. We don't know at this point whether the kid has punctured the spleen, but Peter yeah. Purvis can't stop laughing, right? But there's some... I don't know if it's a woman or a man, but it's quite a high-pitched voice, pissing themselves laughing all, all the way through it, right? And I just think, at what point do you make kids do something that dangerous for a start, right? And then have no... There, there's no plan B. If something goes wrong... There's yeah. just some dodgy old twat in a frock coat, and that's it. Who's got? Who's wearing? 
like a white like a white leather like a white leather handbag on. And I don't and know what the, I don't know what the bloke with the frock coat's got in that white leather handbag. But, <laughs> but it's it'll not going to help. It'll be smelling salts. It'll be smelling salts and some gauze. <laughs> and that's, which has been there since like 1942 and has evaporated. Right, it's no good to man nor beast. <laughs> and Peter Purvis. I mean, Peter Purvis must have seen a lot anyway because he, he obviously worked with John Noakes. Google John Noakes climbs Nelson's column. Right. right. You and talk the, health and safety. Jesus this Christ. is the maddest thing I, I have ever seen. Anyone to watch that without their palms drenched in sweat. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't do that for a hundred grand. John Nooks goes up a, a, <laughs> just a lashed on wooden ladder tied on my bits of ropey old hemp rope up Nelson's column, right? Wearing Cuban eeled ankle boots and a pair of flares, <laughs> a jumper, right? No helmet, no no, no safety Nothing safety to speak of, right? The bit when they go to the overhang and they've just got this sort of... Oh. It's like a, like a 45 degree angle upside down and he's laughing about it, about how dangerous it is and how scared he is. Yeah. I'm thinking he's got... But he's still doing it. Oh, also, my God. Not only well, is the cameraman's he... doing that with, with about a 1970s camera. Yeah. <laughs> also, not only is he hundreds of feet up, once he gets up there, which I couldn't do, I'm I'm terrible no. at heights. Once he's oh. up there, he's got to clean a load of pigeon shit. <laughs> How's that entertaining? How's that kid's entertainment? There's another time he, he, he cleans. Um, I think he's cleaning the face of, of the. We call it Big Ben, the clock tower in Westminster. Yeah, but he just he sat on what can only be described as a shit little bit of wood, right? <laughs> like a swing. And yeah, they lowered yeah. him down on just, a, just an old rope. Bleak as fuck. I mean, it wasn't exactly Thundercats. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, just, I just cannot believe the courage of the man. Because I've, I, I, I love John Noakes. He's, he's everything I love about madcap mental British people. Yeah. I just go, I go back to that clip probably once every six months and can never believe what I'm seeing. So, if, I mean, if I was commentating on Junior Kickstart and there was like an a eight-foot pit with a, a balance beam and a kid going across on a motorbike, I, I'd say, hang on a minute, lads. Do, do, just put it on the grass. It's the same, it's the same yeah. skill. It's just less dangerous, right? Or get a crash mat or something better than straw. You can see, you can see Peter Burbis thinking that kid's a pussy. <laughs> Oh, little do we know 15 years later he was fighting Kimbo Slice in some backyard <laughs> in Chicago. Uh, right, oh, my clip for round two is uh, a commercial. It is for Kellogg's start, and it is kind of why I like athletics. Start with three wholesome grains, not one. 11 vitamins and minerals, glucose and honey. So it's Steve Cram in what I assume is the Nevada desert. Mm. It's kind of, it's pretty sparse and pretty bleak. And this would probably be the first time I would have seen, because it's kind of like 84, 85. Yeah. So this would be the first time I've seen Steve Cram in any form. And I must have eaten Kellogg's Start for, I'd say, seven years as a result of this advert. I, I love Start. Yeah. But what a cereal. No to, mark, to market it as a health food, well, it is absolutely preposterous <laughs> to market that stuff as a health food. I, you you I, may as well eat birthday cake for breakfast. <laughs> it is the sweetest cereal. <laughs> and I do. Yeah. 
<laughs> every time I, I love a, I love, a, I love a spoonful. Four think times that's a delici- year. <laughs> I think that's delicious. <laughs> and then within ten seconds, my, t- my, my teeth are itching. Oh. It is. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying lockdowns affected me, but I googled start cereal earlier, right? Yeah, yeah it's, basi- it's basically it's Cheerios, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, dip, yeah. Dip, yeah. Three grains, three grains, and a shitload of sugar. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And various vitamins. See, you you mocked me last week for just getting my vitamins from a bottle, but they <laughs> they sold that. Start. They sold that on the fact you got a thirty vitamins for the day just by eating Kellogg's Start. You 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 crumble a chicken breast on top of there, mate, and you were away. <laughs> And <laughs> I'm it with a pint of Guinness for Ian. I would say I ate Mars bars for another three years because I wanted to be Peter Elliott. Yeah, and yeah. Well, Mars um, bars were also basically marketed as an energy bar, weren't they? I mean, that yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Work, rest, and play. That was such a golden age, mate, wasn't it? Of like when you had Ovet and Cohen into Cram and that, that sort of middle distance yeah. running. Yeah. There's a, there's a big obviously there's always a big debate in sport about nature versus nurture. Hey, look, you know, so why why are people from Jamaica, you know, seem to dominate a lot of the sprint events? And obviously, there's a there's probably a physical side to it, but a lot of it is who your role models are. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. culture. I, I watched yeah. a uh, doc a couple of years ago about we talked about Usain Bolt there about uh, sort of um, Jamaican sprinters. It's massive in Jamaica. Like the, the number of yeah. people come out to watch kids sprint. Yeah, you know, if you're if you're the fastest kid in your town or your village. That's a huge deal. You know? People come out to yeah. watch it in, in droves. So obviously everyone there is trying to be the fastest person in the world. He trained in Crystal Palace near where I live. And um, I knew someone who went down there to watch him. And, and he was he was pushing the other athletes in that Jamaican team so hard they were being sick on the side of the track. Just throwing up Kellogg starts everywhere with that. <laughs> <laughs> sugar puffs everywhere, as far as you can see. Oh, sugar puffs, man. <laughs> Let's go to the books now. Uh, Mike, you're up first. Right, my book this week is called 90 Minutes of Freedom, Prescott Football Club, the only uh, prisoner football team in Wales. Uh, bit of disclosure, it's written by a friend of mine that I was in university with called Jamie Grundy, and it looks at, um, as it says in the title, it's a, it's a prisoner football team in, in Gwent, in Prescott Open Prison, and they run a football team to sort of rehabilitate uh, the lads in there and try to get them... Uh, doing something positive with their life uh and it's a the bit of preamble about the prison about the about about prison football but then what's interesting what i found really interesting is it, it interviews um all the players and they, they get you get to hear their voice uh, and it's their story and it's what football means to them and what being a team means to them and it's there's some really touching stories in there and the bit that i found really interesting I, well, I, I was doing a little bit of research about it, is that they've they've won the league that they're in, uh, I think, 10 times in the last 15 years because they're, they're good, fit, young lads on, on the whole. Yeah. Right? Um, and they're I think they're in Gwent Division 2. Uh, Gwent Division 2. But because if they got promoted from that, they would end up in the Football League pyramid, uh, part of the deal with them being admitted into the league is they can't be promoted, right? So it doesn't matter okay. how well they play, how often they train, you know, what sort of football they play. And they outscore people by by a bucket load of goals to, to almost none. And like I said, regularly win the league. But they know that they can't be... Whatever happens, they're not going to go up. And I, there's a weird little metaphor there for that sort of loop that you can get stuck in in prison anyway. So, 
yeah, it's just it's just an interesting look at. I didn't I didn't even know that that went on. To be honest, I, I've seen the longest yard, and I've seen Mean Machine, and I knew that like it was a big thing in America that they do these sports teams. I I had no idea that they played uh, prison sports in this country. Right, my choice for this week is called Knowing the Score. It's kind of a blend of sport and philosophy. It's by a guy called uh, David Papinow, and he kind of looks at things he's a philosopher so he looks at the whole of sport through the prism of what he's trained in but he's a big sports fan as well there are bits about um rules and about fairness where he says that if you're just a philosopher then Thierry Henry's handball against the Republic of Ireland means that he went against the rules of the game therefore France cannot win that game from a philosophical point of view Hate to blow my own trumpet, as we all know, but I specialised yes. in in sports philosophy when I did my my degree. Did you? Yeah, that was my thing. I did sports philosophy and ethics. But um, the, yeah, there, there, there's a big. That's quite a strong philosophical argument to say that if as soon as you're not competing within the rules of that sport, then yeah, you can't win that sport because you're not playing it. I never thought of that. I think it's a fantastic sort of logic. There's a, there's a quote from C. B. Fry, who was <laughs> England international at football and cricket and also equaled the world record for the long jump. So, quite good a back in his day. Did he ever fight Kimbo Slice? Because <laughs> he would have got his ass kicked. <laughs> and when, when the penalty rule got brought into football, in his rule, he was, he was absolutely outraged by the introduction of a penalty because he said uh, it's a standing insult to sportsmen to have to play under a rule which assumes that players intend to trip, hack or push their opponents and behave like cads of the most unscrupulous kidney. What's yours, Al? What's your choice for this week? Mine is an, an absolutely extraordinary book about an absolutely extraordinary athlete who I think is the greatest runner of all time, uh, Emil Zatopek. Today we die a little... Um, Olympic legend, a Cold War hero by Richard Asquith. He's such an astonishing human being. Pretty much every page, something will happen. You think, oh, that's the thing that if that happened to me, I would dine out on that for the rest of my life. He, he completely redefined running. He was doing 25 miles of sprints a day. And the the stuff he was doing, and also it's it's in Czechoslovakia in the winter, so he's running with three tracksuits on, um, and he's getting back to have a shower, and there's there's no hot water, so there's ice in the in the shower room, and that's that's why he reckons he never got a cold. Catch that chicken rack. He spoke seven <laughs> languages. Um, he set eighteen world records, and he won five Olympic medals, the fifty two Olympics. Yes. He won the 5,000 metres, he won the 10,000 metres. He won the marathon and broke the record, the Olympic record for the marathon, having never run a marathon before. Okay, so his quality. tactic, his tactic for the tactic, singular, for the, mar- for the marathon, was he found out who the favourite was, who was um, an English runner, a guy from, uh, from East London. He was like, well, I'll just stick with him and then, <laughs> and then I'll win at the end. So he, he sticks with this guy at the 13-mile mark. So he says, uh, the pace, Jim, is it, is it too fast? Peter's irritably. No, it has to be like this. They're 13 miles into the marathon at this stage. Brilliant. Pause. Emil, are you sure it's not too fast? Peter's, with what he later described as cockney defiance, actually, it's too slow. So he's like, all right then. So he just burns him yeah. off. 
and that's it. <laughs> Never sees him again. There are a huge amount of, of myths around him. One of the myths was um, was that he used to train with his wife on his back. That, that, that they don't think that is true. But the one time he definitely ran with his wife on his back was when um, they were they were walking. They've been shot out from behind. <laughs> they were walking in a wood, <laughs> and there was a little stream, and there was a bloke just eating a sandwich. And he went up to to this bloke who was eating the sandwich, and he said, um, "Should we throw my wife in the river?" And the guy puts a sandwich down and goes, yeah, I mean, if she's up for it, let's, let's go for it. So they throw in the river and she breaks her leg and then he carries her back to the village. That's the only time they reckon he carried her. But he wasn't training <laughs> sort of got, day to day. Was, he, was he all there? I mean, what's he doing? <laughs> like, my, 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 wife is, my wife's jumped on my back before now, right? Um, not, you know, not like that. In sport, sport events and gigs. Yes. I went to go see the Mannix and she was on my back for part of that concert. I yeah. never felt the urge to stop a stranger and ask her to help me throw her in the tap at her in the, on the way home. I stopped a stranger eating a sandwich and asked him to throw my wife in the river. She, I'm reading that book. I'm reading that book because of that sentence. Uh, right, that is us for this uh, episode. We have free beer on offer for you still. So uh, beer52.com slash distant for your eight free beers. Uh, keep your guesses coming in for The Secret Guitarist. Um, Hannah Langford has gone for Coldplay's Johnny Buckland. Uh, Lands Lonely Heart says Brian May. Uh, BMS underscore 2000 says James Dean Bradfield. Uh, Felix White from the Maccabees comes from Pod oh, underscore cool. 10. And Felix White also from Symes the Original. Could be. Mm. Could well be. Likes his cricket. Mm. Tail Enders podcast guy. Oh, of course, Could be. Yeah. Could be well, Felix. Also, Steph, as people are getting in touch with uh, some... Classic 80s theme tunes that they can play. Like. Yes, we do. We need uh, classic 80s sports themes for you guys to play on whatever you have in the house. Mm. If you have an acoustic, go for that. If you have an electric, go for that. If you've got the synthesizer out. If you've got a ukulele, please spare us. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather record. <laughs> Absolutely not. No recorders, no ukuleles. Can we say no kids? Yeah. yeah. Is that the worst about yeah. coaches, kids? Absolutely. <laughs> Save that for your own Twitter. Right, that is us for this week. Thank you, gentlemen, for your company. I'm off to YouTube Gimbo Slice.